Again, good morning. Glad that you are with us today. I have a few things to say and then I'll sit down. I guess Bill's happy now. Oh. John Redpath, in a sermon that he gave titled The Love of God, tells a story. A story of two ancient warriors, Cyrus and Cagular. Cyrus was the emperor of Persia. Cagular was the chief of some little known, I guess you'd say, village or small nation. But they were tough. And they continued to resist Cyrus and his advances. Maybe a little bit like Russia and Ukraine. A large nation invading another smaller nation. Cagular would, or Cyrus would win, but he had amassed his whole army and surrounded Cagular. Takes the nation, captures Cagular, the king, the chieftain, and brings him to the capital for his execution. On the day that he was to stand before him, his family is there, Cagular, his wife and children, and Cagular is standing there, very confident, very assured of himself, very handsome in his clothing, his royal clothing for his little nation. Cyrus is pretty impressed, and he asks him, said, what would you do should I spare your life? And the warrior said, your majesty... You spared my life, I'd return home and remain your obedient servant as long as I live. That sounds pretty good. He said, What would you do if I spared the wife of your life? The life of your wife. Well, if you spared my the life of my wife, I would die for you. That moved him. He made him uh, he freed him and appointed him to be the governor of the province that he ruled over before. Of course, I don't know how you'd be if you were brought in before royalty and the splendor that they had. And Cagular was talking about the scene that was there and said, did you notice the marble entrance to the palace? Did you notice the majesty of the place? Did you see the corridor of the throne room? Did you see the throne on which he sat? It was made of solid gold. Now, his wife appreciated her excitement, but said, I really didn't see any of that. And he was kind of surprised. He said, well, what did you see? You didn't see any of those things. He said, I looked at the face of the man who said he would die for me. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Jesus. As we do every Lord's Day, we're going to talk about the man who would die for us. Today is known in the Christian world, so so to speak, the broader Christian world, known as Palm Sunday. It is on this day, Palm Sunday was the day that after the Passover, that they would, well, after Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in John, in chapter 13, in chapter, no, I've got them mixed up there, didn't I? After raising Lazarus in chapter 11, Jesus then would, and his disciples, would stop by and have a feast. 
But then Jesus would enter Jerusalem. Zechariah said years prior to this, prophesied, saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice, shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on the donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey? Saying that's how the king is truly going to be coming into Jerusalem to offer salvation. That's what was going on in John chapter 11. And so if we turn to John chapter 11, and in my Bible it's noted as the triumphal entry, and here's what it says. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. There are many occasions that the people thought Jesus was the king, that he was the promised Messiah. In fact, in John chapter 6, they wanted to make him their king. It wasn't his time. They wanted to make him their king because they were seeing all these miracles that he was doing. That they fed 5,000 on that occasion in John chapter 5. They wanted to make him king because he could make them whole and they knew that he could lead them into victorious military victory over Rome. And that's what they wanted. And so I'm certain that those were on their thoughts as well. But Jesus didn't come in riding on a horse like most kings would and saying, I'm here having a sword on his side ready to challenge the Roman authorities. But it said, just as Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They were trying on many occasions to stop Jesus from his preaching and his teaching, but they just couldn't do it. His entry into Jerusalem had to be something somewhat spectacular. There was a great celebration. And the Pharisees were very frustrated. And so for the next few days, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Herodians, the chief priests, tried it time and time again to trap Jesus, to trick him with questions, to turn the people against him. But that all failed miserably. And we all know some of the events of that week. The people wanting, as I said, to crown Jesus their king. He cleansed the temple. He would later... John 13, wash the feet of the disciples that have the Last Supper, taking that final Passover meal together. Following that meal, they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would spend time in prayer, taking close with him, Peter, James, and John, and asking them to stay and watch while he went deeper into the Garden in prayer. But that was the place where, since Jesus was there, that Judas, who would betray him, brought the troops, the Roman troops and this, the guards from the temple as well. For the rest of that night, Jesus would have to endure their scorn, their abuse during an illegal trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin council. The witnesses of that trial couldn't get their story straight. 
No matter what they tried to do with their witnesses, it just didn't add up. It wasn't going the way that they wanted to. Till finally, the chief priest asked him, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said simply, I am. That was enough. He admitted it. He claimed to be the Son of God. And now it was time to execute him for blasphemy. The only problem is, is that the Jewish people had no authority to do that very thing. They could not execute him. So they had to take him before Pilate. Because Pilate could do that. But to get Pilate to do that, they would have to prove to Pilate that he was guilty of sedition against the Roman government. And so now I want you to turn with me, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. A, very, a passage is very familiar to us. And we notice something about Pilate in this passage. And it says in chapter 23, verse 13 and following, Pilate called them all together, the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate knew that they were just jealous. Jealous of Jesus' popularity with the people. That threatened them that they might lose their place in the eyes of the people, in the eyes of the kingdom. And maybe Rome would kick them out and have Jesus reign. They were jealous. <clears throat> Pilate knew it. But Pilate was not a strong man in this regard. It says in verse 18, But they all cried out, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They're 0 for 3. He's leaning very much. I'm going to release this man. And they just said, I found no guilt within him deserving death. I'll punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for the insurrection and murder and for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. He finally had enough. He couldn't resist them anymore because they weren't going to be quiet about this at all. A poet once wrote the words saying of this in a poem, of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these might have been. Maybe it's true that the words, the most tragic words in the human language are almost... Last Monday night, I was sitting in front of the TV. It was the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game. The KU Jayhawks were playing the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. KU was a number one seed. Tar Heels were number eight, but they had fought in marvelously in the tournament. And there were a few times that KU had some scares. But both teams, 
were on their game. The first half, the Tar Heels were on their game. They were up by 15 at the half. Early in the first, second half, they would go up by 16. But KU came back. They played really, really well in the second half. They tied the game. Then they went ahead, and the, tie, the score would bounce back and forth for a little while, with KU going up several points. And then, with about, I don't know, 45 seconds left, 30 seconds left, KU's up by three. Tar Heels get the ball, and they're going down. They miss a shot, and they're trying to fight for the rebound, and it's going, and one of their players throws it to somebody else on the sideline for a three-point shot because the clock's winding down, and it goes out of bounds. 4.6 seconds left. I'm just pretty certain that a few KU fans at 15 down at half probably said they've lost, turned off the TV and just shut down the game, said forget it. There might have been a few North Carolina fans that did the same thing. But if your team's in the win, you want to see the climax, right? You want to see them win. Well, KU inbounds the ball, and their man steps on the, on, on the bound, out-of-bounds line. They set the clock, reset it, found out he's out-of-bounds, stepped on the line. 4.3 seconds left in the game. UNC has a chance to tie the game, but it's going to take a three-point shot. And those aren't as easy as a dunk, right? Their man was guarded heavily, and he throws up the shot. And as the ball misses the basket, time runs out. KU wins the game. Almost, but not enough. Almost speaks of, as one has said, aborted opportunities and missed chances. And I'm sure as long as this world exists, almost will dot the pages of human history. I almost did that. I almost climbed that mountain. I almost reached that goal. I almost got there in time. We've all had an almost experience in our life. But the most famous almoster, if you would, to coin a word, in history would have to be Pilate because he almost released Jesus. He wanted to release Jesus, but he just couldn't lower the gavel and said, he's gone, freed. I let him go. He's innocent. But he didn't do it. They were urgent, verse 23 told us in their pleas, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. And so finally, after three times, after their demands, he gave in. He listened to their voices. He even probably listened to the voices of Satan himself, if you will. And we've heard voices like that. Go ahead and do it. Our, our young children hear those all the time. Oh, nobody's going to know. Go ahead and do it. It's okay. Everyone does it. Satan uses many ways to try to entice us to go back into paths that we shouldn't go. Pilate didn't have to listen to the voices of those gathered that day before him bringing Jesus to trial for judgment by Pilate. He could have listened to his wife who sent a note to him saying, Hey, I have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have had a, suffered much because of him today in a dream. I don't know why God put that dream in her mind, in her heart. But she had a dream. And it upset her. It upset her enough to write, jot down a note quickly, knowing what was going on with Pilate, and send it to him by messenger and said, Here, have nothing to do with him. 
Back off. Don't give them what they want. I don't know what all it said. He could have listened to her. He almost listened to her. But he didn't. He could have listened to his own thoughts. He knew that the reason the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought him to them was because of their jealousy. He could have just laughed at them. You guys are just jealous. He's got crowds following him. He's got people who love and adore him. And you put all these burdens on your own people and they're just tired of it. And you don't want him to compete with you. I don't know what all he would have said in that regard. But he knew that Annas and Caiaphas, the chief priests, were corrupt and greedy. He knew that these were lies. He didn't find anything of Jesus worthy of death. He could have released him, listening to his own voice, but he didn't. But Pilate's not the only one who plays the game of almost. We play it too. Some will say, I almost obeyed the gospel. I was really thinking about walking down that aisle and putting Christ on in baptism, but I didn't. You know, the worst time to say that almost is when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I almost did it. Does that count? Unfortunately, it will not. The Bible teaches us that there are no almost with God. There's no almost heaven. There's no almost place where we can go. It's heaven or hell, no place in between. Pilate's tragedy could become ours as well. But on the cross, Jesus said some words. We're going to talk about them. He said, Father, forgive them. As we read that story, we read about the crucifixion. And even though Pilate came close to freeing Jesus, he didn't do it. So we're now at the scene where we see soldiers going about their task. They were used to crucifying people. It wasn't anything odd or unusual to them. They'd done it many times beforehand. They lay the cross on the ground and they nailed the body of Jesus to it. And the two thieves that were going to be crucified with him that day. They lift up those crosses and drop them into a hole. Maybe they put some dirt and some wood down there to make sure that cross is firmly in the ground, not moving. They were done. Jesus was crucified. And now maybe the chief priest, Annas and Caiaphas, by now should have been, could have been satisfied, but there was something that really bothered them. And that's because Pilate, and maybe it was just to get a dig in on them, say, I'm going to have the last word on this. Jesus, King of the Jews, was the sign he had put at the top of the cross. And they went to him and said, oh, no, don't put that. We don't like that sign up there. Put, he said he was King of the Jews. He said, I've written what I've written, and that's going to stay. Jesus, King of the Jews. Now they would all go before the crucifixion and watch and wait for Jesus' death. Meanwhile, they're looking up at that sign as well. as Because when they look up at him, they see the sign. So Jesus is there hanging on the cross. And through tears and blood, he sees the faces of people who had gathered around him. Maybe a large crowd because it was Passover. Maybe because all of those that the Pharisees had riled up to say crucify him before Pilate wanted to see this event happen. But Jesus looked down upon the people from the cross. What was he looking for? Peter? He wasn't there. Peter said, I will follow you to my death. I'll defend you to my death. And yet he denied him three times before the cock crowed. Peter wasn't there, nor was Matthew, nor James, 
None of the other disciples were there save one. That was John. The soldiers are there gathering underneath, throwing the dice. They're gambling, taking lots to see who gets his garment. But their minds weren't looking at Jesus. They were right next to where the blood might have been dripping on the ground. They might have glanced up occasionally when they heard him take a breath in pain. They just wanted to see who's going to get his robe, though they didn't care. But maybe they heard the words as Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And ultimately he was saying, Father, forgive that soldier for not driving those nails into my hand. Forgive Pilate, who ordered me to be killed, even though he found me innocent. Forgive even Annas and Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, all of the rest of these people. And ultimately that prayer, Father, forgive them, would be for you and me. Sometimes we have a hard time getting along with people. Jesus told us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know that I could do the prayer that Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, especially if somebody is torturing me and I know they're going to kill my wife and children. But Jesus did. Jesus taught us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then he would say some other words. Words in, that we're familiar with. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel writers tell us that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. Three times he spoke before the darkness came. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He would respond to one of the thieves who would stop reviling him and say, remember me when you come in glory. And he said, truly, I say to you this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Then he looks at Mary, his mother. He sees John standing there with her and he says, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, John, behold your mother. And then it gets dark. Dark for three hours. And that's when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people who hearing the words thought maybe he was calling for Elijah. They were excited. They wanted to see if Elijah was going to come and take him down off the cross. Those who were the closest heard, Why have you left me alone? And that was the time when God turned his back on Christ. The separation because of the sins of man was heaped upon Christ and God couldn't bear to look. My thoughts. And so God turned away and the world became dark. It was the middle of the day. It shouldn't have been dark, but it was. And then as the darkness left, Jesus cried out, I thirst. And then he said, it is finished. And Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. It was all over. God won. The temple was torn, and the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. There was an earthquake, and tombs were opened. All sorts of things were happening, getting the attention of the people. What's going on, I'm certain. But the greatest victory of all had been won. On a hill that looked like a skull, for it's what it was cost, called Golgotha, the place of the skull, 
Everything that God had worked for, planned for, was realized in the death and burial of Jesus. Because soon he would be buried. And then three days later, he would be raised from the tomb. And so the message of Calvary is something simply like this. There's something probably, though, more consistent about life than its inconsistencies. One has said life is like a tossed salad. You stick your fork in it, you don't know what you're going to get. Or it's like a roller coaster. It has its ups and downs and twists and turns. And you really don't know what's ahead. That first time on it, it's going to be wild. I'm not really a fan of roller coasters. They have some wild ones, though. But there's one very strong message that comes to us from Calvary. It's that God is able to take all of our inconsistencies, all the fragments and pieces of your life and mine, and weave them together into something beautiful just like he had planned. And that's the message that we need to hear. Because one day the sun shines, the next day it rains. We think it's going my way this day, and the next day it's not. And there are just all sorts of things going on. And Jesus is saying it doesn't matter. Because if you're committed to me and you're walking with me, you'll find righteousness, goodness, you'll find victory. We said last week, Abram believed in, in hope against hope. Even though he didn't knew that fathers didn't, weren't age 100 when they had a child. And wives weren't 90 when they had a child. But he had hope. At Calvary, the message is despair is replaced with eternal hope. And so this morning, our thoughts should be, God, help us to never, ever look at the cross and see the one who died there without feeling the touch of a tear tear on our cheek, feeling our hearts strangely moved, without feeling our hearts strangely moved and broken. Let us never look casually at the cross of Christ and be almost moved by it. And then turn away and go on with life as usual. Let it impact us. Remembering what it cost God and what it cost Jesus. The ultimate tragedy of every service that we have is that there are people who are almost ready to make a decision. Almost ready to put Christ on in baptism. Almost ready to say, I've got to get my life right. I need the prayers of the church. I want them. And they almost come forward to seek and ask for those prayers. And they don't because, eh, I don't want everybody to know what's going on with me. Others are just like the soldiers, just casting dice at the feet. They're engrossed in whatever they're doing. They never look up and they never let the message sink in. So it's again this morning at the close of my lesson, we're going to offer that invitation. Praying that if you're almost there, don't turn away like Caiaphas and Annas. Don't turn away like the soldiers. Look and listen. Make that decision. And I know that when the invitation is offered, you can make that decision right where you stand. But make the decision that you're going to follow Jesus, that you're going to walk with him. And if you want to make it publicly and let us all know so we can pray with you and for you, let us know. Make your commitment to Christ. The song of invitation is all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. So if you're moved to do that today, don't almost do it, but do it. While together we stand and while we sing this song for your encouragement.